Okay, we are recording. Hello, welcome in. Hi, my name is Phil. Welcome to my channel. This is the introduction to the Magic the Gathering series that I'm beginning. I'm a longtime fan of Magic and I guess a casual player with some experience in competitive settings at my local game store and MTGO. Uh, what would be considered a Timmy or Johnny player type, enjoy playing the game for fun, building creative decks that may not win but have unique interactions, and certainly love the aesthetic, the high appreciation for the art, the lore, the story, and everything surrounding the Magic community in general. Now, I recently moved away from my original local game store and playgroup and have missed playing and have spent time just browsing my collection of cards and fantasizing about deck building and the epicness of MTG. And of course, due to the pandemic, I've had time and the chance to go through a collection of MTG books that I have collected and borrowed and really got caught up in the story of Magic again while not being able to play. Now, this will be a podcast version, so I'm going to be reading the books from MTG's past and try to do them in the order that I have them. But I get excited. I get fired up. I might add a comment here or there. You, know, you might hear me take a sip of water, my dog bark, maybe have questions at the end of each recording as I'd like to be interactive with those following along. Um, I will be beginning with The Brothers' War, The Tale of Urza and Mishra, and I have been trained professionally to broadcast. I will do my best to pronounce things correctly, but this is Magic the Gathering, and there are a lot of things that I've never heard said before or read before, so I'll give it my all to make sure it sounds correct and uh, sounds good. And I wanted to do this because I think it's part of the game that is kind of missing. The books are hard to find. I've only seen one other audiobook version of them, so I'm just doing what I wish I had while learning the game and even as a fan of it to find out who and what all these characters, places, creatures, and motivations are. This is also dedicated to my playgroup, who I miss dearly. I miss you guys. We'd play uh, in the Magic Barn without any rules or regulations with these decks that were overpowered in multiplayer huge games that were incredibly fun. And hopefully they can follow along with the journey through the lore with me and keep us connected. Uh, and lastly, a dedication, of course, to Magic Mike of Mox Mania in Madison, Wisconsin, my former local game store. He's the real legend here, a good friend. These are his books, so thank you. And with that being said, I'll try to get at least an hour a week of reading done and uploaded, podcasted. And so with that, please like, subscribe, share, and comment as I'd love to hear any feedback. And obviously, it'll keep me motivated to keep doing this. Okay, so with that being said, let's begin with The Brothers' War. The Brothers' War by Jeff Grubb Magic, The Gathering Artifact Cycle, Book One Prologue, Opposites Attract It was the night before the end of the world. The two armies had gathered on opposite sides of a blasted vale. Once, this had been a verdant valley, its wide plain shaped by a wide meandering stream its flanking hills blanketed by thick groves of oak, blanchwood, and ironroot. Now these trees were gone. No more than ragged stumps remained. The grass burned away and the earth beneath packed hard and barren. The stream was a sluggish flow hidden by a thick film of oil, its surface broken only by the shadowy masses of nameless solids. Thick, inky clouds concealed the moons and stars from sight. It had been overcast and cold on Argoth, despite unseasonably warmer weather elsewhere on Terrasire. 
Both sides in the upcoming battle had taken to torching the forests they found, if only to deny their opponents supplies and support. By day, the cloud canopy was a dull gray, a sheet of rolled and unfinished steel. By night, it was lit only from below by the thousands of campfires and foundries that now dotted the landscape. Along the opposite rims of the Vale, the flames lit by both invading forces glimmered like evil eyes in the darkness. Spanning the shallow stream was a pair of toppled giants, remnants of an earlier battle between one of the invaders and the original inhabitants of this land. One of the fallen giants had been made of living wood, had been splintered into a thousand shards. Its huge forested head lay on the ground, screaming silently to the uncaring night. It had been the last champion of the natives of Argoth, the avatar of their goddess, and with its death passed away all hope for the island people. The victor in the battle had also been destroyed in the struggle. This huge humanoid monster was made of stone, its joints constructed of massive plates of pitted iron and great brass gears. Its lithic body had been broken and patched a number of times, and great sheets of metal had been bolted to its hide to hold it together. The battle with the living forest beast had overtaxed its pistons and armatures. Its final lunge had splintered its opponent, now it sprawled forward, face down, a bridge over the tepid stream. One of the stone giant's arms had been ripped loose from battle and lay a few hundred feet away, its fingers raised to claw the sky. On the back of the granite giant's silent corpse, a lone figure waited. In his youth, he'd been broad-shouldered and handsome, but the years of war and service to his master had exhausted him. His shoulders were slumped now. His frame carried the additional weight of both his responsibilities and his age. His once-tussled blonde hair was worn short, and the first patch of skin was apparent at the crown of his head, herald of eventual baldness. Still, he was taller than most of his fellows, so others did not see it unless he was seated. For the moment, he paced along the giant's back. Tonos pulled his rough brown woolen cloak tighter around him, cursing the cold and dark. As he did so, his fingers scraped against the metal breastplate beneath. It did not fit him. Very little that had not been made specifically for his large frame did, and he had brought it along only as an afterthought. The message had been warm and welcoming, but it came from the enemy camp. Urza would be irritated if his former student let his guard down so easily. There was motion along the far side of the giant's back, near where its smashed head lay at the twisted angle to rest the body. Tonos did not see her climb up, but suddenly she was there, a flash of red hair surrounded by an ebon cloak. It was as if she wore a piece of the night itself, and wore it very well. She was alone, as she had promised. As she crossed toward him, Tonos pulled a small device from his pocket. It was a flattened sphere with a lamp's wick jutting from the top. He pressed a stud along the side of the sphere, and the device sputtered. The wick burst into a brief yellow flame, which subdued to a soft orange hue, as Tonos manipulated the small stud along the side. Achnod drew into the light, and he found that she had the bemused smirk that he had always found attractive. He also saw that there were now silver hairs among the scarlet. "'I heard you were dead,' he said. "'Don't believe everything you hear, duck,' replied Ashnod the uncaring." with a broad smile. I've heard I've died at least five times in the past ten years. The smile faded and the voice turned solemn. You came. Thank you.
You sent a message, said Tonos. Could have been a trap, said Ashnod. Could have been, admitted Tonos, and opened his cloak. His breastplate reflected the small light which glimmered off the two sets of ornate weapons that rode on his hips. Ashnod smiled again. Good to know you're still cautious, she said. Prepared, observed Tonos. That is all. Prepared. Ashnod slung her pack on the ground and knelt next to it. Tonos hesitated, then joined her. They sat in relative silence for a long moment. Far off in the distance on either side of the veil were the hammers of forges preparing for the bloody business of the next day. You sent a message? prompted Tanos. This is the last one, you know, said Ashnod, staring out into the night, pierced by red fires. The last battle, the final conflict, one way or another, the resolution of the war between your master and mine. Between Urza and Mishra, said Tanos with a nod. They are both here, Ashnod added. There are no reinforcements. No retreat is possible for either side. One way or another, it all ends here. Tano shifted uncomfortably. It had been a long time since he had sat cross-legged on hard stone. It is a good time for an ending, he said. All this has gone on far too long. Across from him, Ashnod bowed her head in the light and wasted so much. Many have lost their lives, agreed Tano's. Ashnod giggled an ill-placed sound that raised the hairs on Tano's neck in irritation. Lives? she said. Lives are nothing. Think of all the forests gutted, the lakes drained, the lands plundered to get us to this point. Think what we could have done with those resources. And people? Yes. How we could have used them otherwise. As she spoke, Tano's could feel his face tighten disapproval. Even the dim glow, Ashnod could feel his silent irritation. Sorry. She said at last. I spoke before I thought. Good to know there are universal constants, said Tano stonily. Sorry. There was another pause, and in the distance something clattered. It sounded like a mechanical demon laughing. How's he? She said at last. The same. Only more so, Tano replied. Yours? Ashnot shook her head. Something's wrong. Tanos raised an eyebrow, and she added quickly, Mishra's colder than ever, more calculating. I'm worried. I always worry, said Tanos. Urza's become more withdrawn over the passing years. Withdrawn, said Ashnod. That's the word. As if we aren't even there, like no one else is. She reached out to touch his shoulder. Tanos stiffened, leaning away, and she let the gesture drop. You're right about it being a waste, she said at last. But it can be avoided. Even now. How? Tano's eyes narrowed. Give him what he wants, said Ashnod. Give Mishra the other half of the stone. Surrender? Tano said, his voice too loud. After all this, surrender. When tomorrow we might carry the field, before we came to Agroth, it might have been an option. Perhaps, he thought a moment, and said more to himself than to his companion. No, not even before. Ashnod held up both hands in a pacific gesture. Just a suggestion, duck. He sent you with that message? My words are my own, snapped Ashnod. He doesn't trust me, she added softly. Who would at this point? asked Tanos. The words were out of his mouth before he realized what he said. Fine, she snarled and stood up suddenly. She grabbed the knapsack and it disappeared again within the shadows of her voluminous cloak. And I even came bearing gifts. 
Any gift from you would be treated suspiciously, said Tano, scrambling to his feet and standing next to her. They paused for a moment, and a cold wind passed between them. Then Ashnod turned to leave. Perhaps, Tanos began. She hesitated at his words. Perhaps we could get our two masters together, he continued. Without their weapons, without their armies, perhaps there's a way to make them both understand each other. Ashnod shook her head. They are lockstepped into their actions now, as mechanical as their own inventions, as relentless as the phases of the glimmer moon. She gave a sad giggle. You dream of a time when they could understand each other. There was never such a time. She walked away from him, then paused and turned. Be careful tomorrow. May you survive the battle. She walked to the far end of the toppled giant and put her hood up. Her scarlet hair disappeared, and she merged once again with the shadows. Be careful yourself, said Tanos to the unresponsive darkness, and turned quietly toward his own camp. As he walked back, one part of his mind noted the condition of the field, seeing pitfalls Urza's troops would have to avoid. But another segment of his consciousness meditated on Ashnod's words, repeating them over and over. There was never such a time. Part 1. A Study in Forces Chapter 1. Tokasia The Argivian archaeologist removed her lenses, rubbed her tired eyes. The desert grit was everywhere, all the more so when the stiff breeze blew eastward from the inland wastes. The desert air was warm as forged coals, but Tokasia was glad for the gentle wind. Without the breeze, it would be merely unbearably and stiflingly hot at the dig site. The aged researcher sat at an ornate table, a huge monstrosity with thick, fluted legs and a heavy top inlaid with polished shell. It was a gift from one of the noble families of Argiv, a reward for straightening out an errant scion of their line. The heirloom looked almost comical perched on the outcropping that Tokasia had claimed as her headquarters, beneath a tarpaulin of pale gray tamakul muslin. The gift had been well-intentioned. She could only imagine the expense incurred in sending the table out to her. The desert had already taken its toll. The hand-rubbed finish had been almost entirely blasted away by the sand-laden wind, and the wood beneath had cracked as the heat boiled away the liquid still locked within. Furniture suitable for an Argivian dressing room was much less acceptable in the desert. Still, it was a flat space, and Tokasia appreciated it. The tabletop was littered with scrolls half-shoved into their cases and survey maps weighted down by bits of rusted metal. The torn edges of the papers fluttering in the breeze, a particularly large chunk of bluish metal sat directly before Tokasia, damning her with its enigma. It looked like a parody of a human skull with a bat-like face and cold, impassive eyes of colored crystal set in the unfamiliar blue-tinted metal. The metal itself seemed as ductile as soft as copper, but bending it only caused it to reform slowly into its original shape. 
A set of Thran glyphs ran along the underside of the skull, which Tokasia had translated roughly as Su Chi. Whether this was the name of the creature, its owner, or its manufacturer was a mystery to her. The skull's lupine lower jaw jutted forward, ending in a handful of fangs. The top of the skull had been peeled away to reveal a tangle of blue metal cables. Set among them was a single large gemstone, the shade of old glass, worn beyond age, and marred by a longitudinal crack along its top. Tokasia sighed. Even if her diggers could find the rest of this Thran artifact's body, it was unlikely that they would ever get it working again. The damage was too extensive, and even if they could recreate its form, the gemstone that provided its power was shattered. They had found only a double handful of such stones that were whole and functioning. Glowing in rainbow hues, they could power old Thran devices. The largest of those stones were shipped back to Argif for additional study, and in exchange for support and supplies. A shadow touched the corner of her table. Tokasia jumped. She had been so involved with the skull that she had not seen anyone approach. She looked up into Lauren's dark face and wondered how long the girl had been there. Lauren was a noble's daughter and one of Tokasia's best pupils, though that was not saying much given the current crop of students. Early in Tokasia's career, she had accepted the financial support of many of the noble houses in Penrigan. In exchange, the houses would often ship their recalcitrant or rebellious junior members out to the desert for a summer to join the mad archaeologist in her excavation of Thran artifacts. To be honest, Takasia thought most of the youths she received were guilty of nothing more than being typical young people, and their parents were only seeking to get them out of the manor house. Once on the site, their interest in the past varied from minimal to non-existent. They were glad to be away from the perfumed and protected courts of Penrigan, its petty intrigues, and most important, their parents. Tokasia entrusted them with as much responsibility as they accepted. Some supervised the Falaji diggers, while others helped glean and catalog the devices they brought to light. Still others were content to man the grapeshot catapults that flanked the camp and served as a deterrent to desert raiders and the scavenging rocks. The young men and women came, served their time, and fled back to the cities with enough tales to impress their friends and enough maturity to mollify their parents. And a few, such as Lauren, had the intelligence, the wisdom, and the presence of mind to come back after their first experience. Lauren was on her third season and coming into the full flower of womanhood. Tokasia knew it was only a matter of time before the girls started to care more for ball gowns and dinner parties than for artifacts and dig sites. But for this summer, at least, she was pleased to have her there to help catalog, organize, and coordinate. Tokasia blinked, pushed her spectacles back up on her nose, and arched an eyebrow at the student. Lauren would never speak unless spoken to, though Tokasia was trying to break her of that habit. There was a pause, and then Laura said softly, The caravan from Argiv has arrived. Tokasia nodded. They had been watching the rising dust cloud from the east all morning, but she thought it would be late afternoon before Bly's wagons would reach them. The old wagon master must have finally sprung for new beasts, or else the old aurochs had finally failed him. What Lauren meant was that Bly's wagons had finally passed through the stockade gates, and Tokasia had best be there to save her students from the bad-tempered merchant's pick 
should the mistress of the camp not be there to greet him. Lauren did not move, and Tokasia added, I will be down as soon as possible. If Bly does not like it, let him stew. Lauren's lips compressed in a thin line. Then the girl nodded and vanished. Tokasia sighed again. In two or three years, Lauren would be ordering merchants like Bly around effortlessly. But for now, she and most of the other students were cowed by the merchant's bluster. Tokasia watched Lauren's retreating form, clad in the cream-colored working shift that most female students labored in. She noted that the girl was already wearing her hair longer, in the fashion favored in the capital. Lauren's hair was long, dark, and thick, making her exotic among most of her compatriots. A touch of the desert was the saying among the Argivian nobility. It was not a compliment, but rather a tactic ac accusation that some desert barbarian was lurking in the family tree. Perhaps that was why Lauren kept coming back for the summers. could not be family pressure. The last time Tokasia visited Penrigan, Lauren's mother, had made it quite clear that Lauren should curb such foolish endeavors as rooting around in the dust for scraps of metal. Tokasia looked out over the camp, a rough wall built around a collection of hills. The low, rolling hills were incised by dry washes and proved to be extremely productive of Thran artifacts. The stockade was more of a demarcation of territory than true protection, but it kept what desert bandits that might prove a problem at bay. The barricade of piled stone was flanked by a pair of oversized catapults loaded with loose rubble to keep the rocks away. Within the walls, most of the activity of the camp was slow in the summer heat. One particular hill, where they had recovered the Suchi skull, proved particularly promising, was now covered with a grid of string and stakes for further examination. The slow-footed onulets plotted to meet the wagons, steered by noble boys who enjoyed thwacking the great albino beasts with their makeshift goads. The gate had closed on the last wagon now, and a wide-girthed figure leapt from the lead carriage, waving his arms in animated fashion. Bly seemed to enjoy terrorizing the students out here, perhaps because he had to kowtow to their parents back in Pendragon. Tokasia smiled at the thought of Bly, back in the Argivian capital, hat in hand, head bowed slightly, trying to enunciate his requests without resorting to curses. The desert was probably the best place for him as well. The archaeologist ran her hands through her short, graying hair, trying to shake out any non-existent tangles. When she had been young, her hair had been longer and almost as dark and luxuriant as Lauren's. It might have been a touch of the desert in her family tree as well. Still, age tendered to make all peoples equal, and her shorn locks were easier to care for in the desert. Tokasia gave the blue metal skull an affectionate pat and rose from her camp chair. She reached for a walking stick, a shattered fragment of wood and bright steel from some unknown Thran mechanism. She was still spry enough to justify the staff as a walking stick to aid her in navigating the uneven ground and not as a crutch, but aches in her joints and the cool of the early desert morning told a different tale. Tokasia took her time descending from her perch. Bly would bluster and complain, but that never stopped him from dealing. The artifacts and saleable loot he would bring back from the site was worth the long and arduous trip inland. It was no surprise, then, that once she reached the wagons, there was a wide circle of students and teamsters surrounding the wagon master. The surprise was the pair of young men that Bly was berating. The two were strangers. One was dark-haired and stocky and flinched every time Bly bellowed. 
He was half hiding behind the other, a lean, tawny-haired boy who stood bolt upright, taking the full blast of the wagon's master's thunder. Frauds! Cheats! Liars! shouted Bly. The pair were all of ten years old, Tokasia guessed, twelve at the outside. That was about the age nobles first considered sending their children out to Tokasia's camp, but these were not her students, and no new arrivals were expected until the beginning of next season. Lauren was at one side of the crowd, looking both embarrassed by the scene and relieved that she was not the object of Bly's temper. "'You seek to cheat me? Now get busy unloading, you motherless dogs!' sputtered Bly, a crimson hue crawling through his face. The dark-haired boy raised his fists and took a step forward. The older blonde lad held out an arm to block his companion, but his eyes never left the wagon master. Sirrah, he said calmly, though loud enough for the surrounding crowd to hear. We had a bargain. We would work for you to pay for our passage here. We are now here, so we will work for you no longer. Wagon master Bly turned an apoplectic purple. You agreed to serve as hands for the journey. The journey isn't over yet. We still have to get back to Penragon. But then we'll have to get back here on our own, exploded the stockier boy, leaning forward against the other's restraining arm. What's going on here, Bly? said Tokasia. The wagon master wheeled on the scholar, blinking as if he had only just noticed her. A private matter, Mistress Tokasia, nothing more. The leaner of the two youths stepped forward. You are Tokasia, the scholar? We're not finished, Bly started, but Tokasia held up a hand and replied to the youth. I am, she said. I am Urza, said the youth. This is my brother, Mishra. The sturdy of the two boys nodded, and the lean youth fished out a battered envelope from within his vest. The seal on the flap, the imprint of a familiar noble household, was intact, but it looked as if the letter had made the entire trip next to the boy's skin. Bly drew in his breath sharply at the sight. Tokasia looked at the two youths, then at the wagon master. She slid a sand-blasted nail beneath the flap and popped the letter open. The script was fluid and well-formed, dictated to a scribe, but the signature along the bottom was recognizable, if weak and jerky. There was a silence for a moment as she read, and both Bly and Mishra shifted impatiently, waiting for the opportunity to start the argument again. The youth Urza stood impassively, hands folded in front of him. Tukasia folded up the letter again and said thoughtfully, Well, that's that, to the two boys, she said. Get your things and follow Lauren there to your quarters. To Bly, she said, These two are now my responsibility. They are joining as students. The purplish hue returned to Bly's face. But they owe me half a trip. You're telling me I have to let these snipes break an agreement just because of some letter? Tokasia let the wagon master complain. She watched the boys pull a pair of slender backpacks from one wagon and lope after the slim form of Lauren. Only when they had passed through the crowd, and that crowd had disappeared to tend to the immediate business of unloading the supplies, did she turn her attention to Bly. Your agreement was for them to work their way through their journey, she said sharply. When they arrived here, that journey ended. They are taking up residence here. Do you understand? There was steel in her voice, and even Bly knew he could not push the scholar around when she took this tone. Instead, he took a deep breath and forced himself to calm. Tukasia held up the letter. This is from their father, from whom I have not heard for many years. What do you know of him? Bly stammered a moment, then said, He's not well at all. Remarried, 
recently, a virago, a real vixen from a good family with their own children. He was taken seriously ill about a month before we left Penragon. He might be dead at this time. He might be, said Tokasia solemnly, or he might be too ill to see his son's well-being. You didn't know about this letter, did you? The wagon master looked at his feet, embarrassed. No, you did not, continued Tokasia, because if you had, you wouldn't have tried to lock those children into such a hard bargain. Full trip indeed. Knowing you, you probably worked those two as hard as your aurochs, if not harder, because you knew that without the letter, I wouldn't take them in on just their word. The new mother, she's a hellkite, said Bly softly, by way of explanation. One of them gone, but wouldn't spend a groat on their well-being. They want to dip into the family money, since they're all probably hers right now. So you gave the boys a break, worked them like slaves, and tried to keep them, since no one would notice their fate, said Tokasia. That's low, even for you, Bly. Now get the supplies unloaded. And yes, I'll do a complete inventory, thank you. And then we'll load the wagons for return. There are some items there will fetch a goodly profit, despite your scandalous behavior. Tokasia wanted to lecture Bly a bit longer, but Lauren came running up. Mr. Tokasia, the new boys! Tokasia scowled at the student. The young girl had actually spoken up, so it must be important. Yes? They're in a fight with Ricklau and the a couple other boys. Tokasia uttered a mild curse. Bly chuckled. I can always take him back if you want, scholar, he said. The scholar shot the wagon master a look that would skin an ox at fifteen paces. To Lawrence, she said, get them all and a couple of the other diggers to break it up, and bring the boys to my tent. Lauren hesitated, and Tokasia practically stamped her foot. Now! The young girl disappeared in a puff of dust, and Bly said, I think that pair are more trouble than they are worth, if you don't mind me saying. I wouldn't be surprised, grunted the scholar. Their father was always a handful. So you're going to keep them? Asked the wagon master, shaking his head. Tokasia sighed. Aye, I owe their father that much for an old favor. Must be some favor, said Bly. What did he give you? Only my freedom, said Tokasia, and turned away from the wagon master without waiting for a reply. Bly looked at Tokasia's back as she walked back up the hill. Was it his imagination, or did she seem to be older and more fragile? than she had been a few moments ago. Then he heard hoarse shouts among the wagons, and the thought was driven from his mind. "'You lot!' he bellowed at the teamsters, throwing himself back into his work. "'Have you never hauled freight before? That stuff's delicate. Handle it like you'd handle your sister's newborn, or we won't get paid!' The hill seemed steeper to Dacasia on the way up than it had been on the way down, and the boys were already waiting for her when she reached the top. Amal and Lauren were there as well. The leader of the desert tribe diggers nodded sharply at Tokasia. In Falaji, the desert tongue, he said, Watch the little one. He was all fists and bites when we pulled him off. So much fire and one so small. The big one bloodied Ricklau's nose, but nothing's broken. Tokasia responded in the same language. Ricklau deserves to have his nose bloodied. Tell him he's on kitchen duty for the rest of the month and move the boy's gear to Havoc's barracks instead. Amal nodded and left the tarp. Lauren made no move to leave until Tokasia instructed her to keep an eye on Bly. The archaeologist strode around her table, sliding the walking cane back into its holder, a drum-shaped basket made from an onulet's foot. She leaned on her palms on the desk and looked at the two boys. Their fine vests had been shredded in the battle, and Urza's pockets had been torn out in the fight. Mishra had acquired a black eye, and both boys showed numerous scratch marks. Tokasia sighed and lowered herself into her seat. 
The boys shifted uncomfortably. Fifteen minutes, she said at last. Fifteen minutes, and you're already in a fight. A new record, even for this place. Both boys started talking at once. Urza said, I would like to apologize on behalf of everyone involved. Mercer burst out with, I'm sorry, but it really wasn't our fault if silence. Tokasia slapped the table hard, so hard the Suchi's skull jumped slightly, and a piece of the pearl inlay bounced out of its setting. The two boys quieted immediately and shifted from one foot to another. Tokasia leaned back in her chair. What happened? The boys looked at each other as if each were granting the other a chance to explain. By mutual, if unspoken, consent, Urza won the opportunity. One of the older boys picked on my brother. I stopped him, he said primly. A large boy with red hair and freckles. So I see, said Tokasia. To Mishra, she said, and why was Riklau picking on you? No reason, said Mishra. Urza started to say something, but Tokasia held up a hand to silence him. After a long silence, Mishra added, He said I was on his bunk. And were you? asked the scholar. Mishra shrugged. I guess. Then after a pause, he blurted out, But he didn't have to be so rude about it. Ricklow is rude about everything, said Tokasia. You're going to have to get used to that if you stay here. To Urza, she said, You're the older brother, correct? I am, said Urza, and Mishra made a small coughing noise. Urza made a face and added, I should say that Mishra and I were born in the same year. I was born on the first day of the year. Mishra was born on the last. So for all days but the last, I am a year older. On the last day, we're equal, piped Mishra, as if pleased that his brother had corrected himself. Tokasia held up a letter from Urza's vest. Do you know what this says? Again, the two boys looked at each other. Tokasia sensed they were conferring in a secret language, one only they could hear. Not exactly, answered Urza at last. Your father was a dear friend to whom I owe much, observed Tokasia. He wants me to look after you, to care for you, should something happen to him. That means you're going to be staying here for quite a while, and that means working with me and my students. If you're uncomfortable with this arrangement, I can send you back with Bly, but to be honest, I don't know what kind of welcome would await you in Penragon. Again, the boys looked at each other. It was Mishra who spoke this time. What is it that you do? I dig, said Tukasia. Or rather, I supervise others who dig. We are searching for artifacts out here. Do you know what I'm talking about? Remnants of the past, said Urza. Of a civilization that stood here long before Argiv or any of the nations of Tersair. Relics. That's right, said Tokasia. Artifacts that range in power, from small toys to great machines. Machines that can do the work of many men. Like the big white ox things? asked Mishra, almost unheard. Tokasia arched an eyebrow at the younger brother. Yes, indeed. The onulets that we use as beasts of burden out here are artifacts. Ones I created based on the designs we've pieced together of the artifact-creating race, the Thran. The onulets are strong, loyal, unthinking machines that are tireless workers. They require neither food nor water, and when they do at last break down, the fluids from their joints are used to brew a hearty beverage that we then trade with desert tribesmen for information and other artifacts. They sound very useful, said Urza. Tokasia leaned back in her chair. I'm impressed, Mishra. 
The framework is covered by stitched hides to protect the workings from the desert sands. I had one student who was quite handy with a needle. Most first-time students assume the onulets are alive, since the only thing comparable are the aurochs. She chuckled. One of the pranks that Ricklau and the other boys were probably planning was to assign you to feed an onulet and not to come back until it had finished its meal. How did you guess they weren't living? Mercer blinked, then furrowed his brow. I didn't guess, I just knew. Urza sniffed and said, The gate is wrong for something alive. It pitches forward when it takes a step. A real creature would be smoother. He looked at Tokasia and shrugged. I knew it too, but I didn't think it important enough to mention. The Thran must have been amazing people to have created it. Tokasia said, And what do you know of the Thran, young Urza? The sandy-haired boy planted his feet apart, put his hands behind his back. A recitation position, Tokasia remembered from her own youth. The Thran were an ancient race that lived in this land many thousands of years ago. They created a number of wondrous devices, only a few of which have survived to this present day. The great clock of Penrigan's Grand Court is said to be a Thran artifact. Tokasia suppressed a smile. The device at the heart of the clock had been one of her earliest finds. But who were they, she asked. Who were the Thran? Were they human? Urza blinked, as if the question were odd. Of course. Why wouldn't they be? What proof can you offer? asked Tokasia. Urza thought for a moment. Tokasia noticed he dropped his head slightly, as if trying to support a thought-filled head with his chest. I don't remember anything saying they weren't. I assume they were. Most people do, said the scholar. But the truth of the matter is we don't know. They might be human, yes. Amal, one of the Falaji, has some folk stories about how the Thran were powerful gods who brought his people into this world. But the story neglect any specifics. The Thran could have been minotaurs, elves, dwarves, or goblins, for all we know. Oh, I hope they were minotaurs, said Mishra. Those are neat-looking. Urza spread his hands before him and said dryly, There was a carnival in Penrigan when we were younger. Most of what Mishra knows of minotaurs comes from seeing one there. But the fact remains, we don't know who the Thran were, continued Tekasia, and so we dig, we examine, and we try to piece together the parts of the past. The onulets are a result of what we had learned. So to a lesser extent are the grapeshot catapults that guard the encampment. We do know that many of the Thran devices were powered by a crystalline energy source. We call them power stones. What the Thran called them is anyone's guess. We have a rough idea of their language, though precious little that has been written down. We have not found statuary, art, or pottery, nothing that implies the creative arts. We know they stripped this land bare, but don't know how they died off, whether by internal war, famine, or plague. She sighed. We have no idea even of what they look like. They could have looked like us. They could have looked like our friend here. She pushed the Su Chi forward on the desk and patted it. Mishra reached forward and grabbed the skull. Tokasia was surprised by the speed that only desert predators and small children can manage. He turned it over and over in his hands. Stop, began Tokasia. She wanted to stop that and put it back down, but she was too late. At the first sound from Urza leapt to his little brother. Put it down, snapped the sandy-haired boy. It might be dangerous. It's not dangerous, snarled his darker-haired brother. If it was dangerous, she'd keep it someplace where we couldn't touch it. Then it's fragile, shouted Urza. You'll break it. If I break it, it'll be because you made me, replied Mishra. The pair formed a tight knot, the Suchi skull between them. Give, shouted Urza. No, responded Mishra. Enough, roared Tokasia. 
thundering both hands on top of the table. At once, both boys were on their feet again, and the skull was rocking gently against the pearl inlay where it had been a minute before. The scholar scowled at the boys. You two talk a good game and seem to have enough energy to burn. Good enough. You're going to spend the rest of the month learning from the ground up. You'll start by working in the kitchen, alongside Ricklau, so I strongly recommend you figure out how to deal with him. If I have any more trouble with the pair of you, I'll send you back with Bly. She glared at them. Do I make myself clear? As one, both boys nodded. Good. Tokasia settled her thin frame in the chair. Now report to the mess tent and start peeling tubers. They're serving a big feast tonight for Bly's men. I trust there will be no more problems? Both boys nodded in unison again. Tokasia waved them out, and they vanished from her tarp, leaving trails of dust behind them as they scampered down the hillside. Despite herself, Tokasia smiled. They were so close in age, but their birth order set their attributes. Urza was ten, yet he carried himself as if he were much older and felt responsible for his younger brother. Mishra was nearly ten, but acted younger and was more exuberant. He would probably always be willing to try new things, thought Tokasia, because Big Brother would be there to watch out for him. Still, she mused, a word to Ricklau would probably be wise. I don't know she would not appreciate hearing he was making life difficult for the two newest and youngest students. That might create more hard feelings if the new children were known to be favorites. But that was a small price, and a temporary one. At the end of the season, this batch of young nobles would head back to Penrigan, and a new group would take their place. The brothers should be capable of handling themselves by then, she thought, or they would be gone. Tokasia's smiles died as she picked up the metallic skull of the Suchi. She examined it carefully to see if the boys had damaged it further in their grappling. Somehow, she saw their fight had jostled the two halves of the power crystal together. The longitudinal crack had vanished, and the crystal was now a solid piece. More interesting, there was a flicker of light deep within the crystal, a weak glow but one that indicated that the crystal still had some of its energy. Tokasia stared at the skull and its crystalline brain until Lauren came to fetch her for dinner with the wagon master's men and her own students. But her eyes and her thoughts strayed often during the meal to the two boys who had so recently arrived in the camp. Well, there it was. Awesome. All right. Get our little introduction there. Here from their new teacher, the boys arriving on the scene, already getting into fights, already seeing a little bit different in personality. Very, very cool stuff. And it's only going to get better. This is the end of our first podcast. So thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a week or so and hopefully, uh, or maybe even earlier, who knows. Uh, we'll try to find a real schedule and uh, get this all put together. So thank you for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>